All right. Well, we are continuing in this series called Revival. And I want to say real quick, um, we are not only studying revival, but we are experiencing a measure of revival already. And I know that's a fact because I'm one of the ones experiencing it. And there has been a marked difference. Um, and I'm speaking just from someone who's observed this, but I'm also speaking from someone, uh, you know, involved in the worship ministry and all that. When we started into this series, when Pastor Sean started teaching on revival, something began to shift and change. And uh, I'm not saying that we're experiencing the fullness or the, the full measure of what Pastor Sean's preached on, but things have begun to change. And I know that there are many of you who can testify to that because I've talked to you about it. But uh, I mean, how many of you guys were here at TNT just a couple nights ago? Was that a good time or what? Yeah, it was an awesome time. And so we are um, experiencing this. We're not just learning about it. It's not just a history lesson. So we're going to continue on tonight um, with this sermon series revival. So I want to start off in Isaiah chapter 55. And I just want to read this before we jump into it. So starting in um, chapter 55, uh, verse 10. It says, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Father, right now we come before you and we just say that our hearts are open. We make a decision right now, Lord God, that we're ready to receive. Lord, we know that your word has power to change, power to transform. And God, we want what it talks about in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of our mind tonight, God. And so, Lord, we align ourselves with your word and we're ready to hear what you have to say tonight. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So, there's a guy from about 200 years ago. His name was E.M. Bounds, E.M. Bounds. And um, he wrote about nine books on the subject of prayer. And he's considered by many, many, many people to be an authority on the subject of prayer. His books span denominational lines and generational lines and have influenced millions of people and inspired millions of people in prayer. And I have a couple of quotes from him because he really is considered uh, an authority on the subject of prayer. And what we're going to talk about tonight is prayer. So one of the things that Ian Bounds said is this, a revival of real praying would produce a spiritual revolution. A revival of real praying would produce a spiritual revolution. There's a reason why I think he has to make a distinction between real praying. And this is why we don't even really need to talk about praying for revival specifically. If we just had a revival of prayer in general, it would lead to revival in general. In fact, if you take all of these things that Pastor Sean's been talking about these last few weeks, and then you add to that a culture or a lifestyle of prayer, you have all those necessary ingredients. You have kindling for God to set on fire for revival. So I don't believe you will ever have revival apart from a prayer culture. I just don't see that. And I, I don't think if you look into the history of moves of God and revival, you don't see anything like that happening without a, a lifestyle of prayer, a culture of prayer surrounding and um, coming as a precursor to that move of God. Here's another quote from Ian Bounds. And we're going to put this one up on the screen. Prayers outlive the lives of those who uttered them. Outlive a generation, outlive an age, outlive a world. Prayer is so powerful because the prayers that you pray, those words that you speak to God or in declaration, in faith, they go beyond the scope of your life. 
they go, they go beyond the scope of your generation. There are prayers that have been prayed decades and centuries ago that we are still living in the effects of. Do you understand what I'm saying? Prayer is so powerful. Prayer is the ultimate game changer. In fact, I could say, I could make the case that prayer is the most powerful thing because prayer connects us with the most powerful person. And so we should never, never, never underestimate how powerful and effective prayer is. And really, and really honestly, I don't know if you're like me or not, but the one thing that I am always trying to be conscious of, trying to be very careful about, is that I don't, uh, is that I don't take lightly things that are very important that God has put in my life, that they don't, come so, they don't become so casual and familiar to me that they lose their importance. Like, for instance, being in the presence of God. I don't ever want that to become some casual, comfortable thing. I want to always let that be the treasure that it is. And prayer is the same way. So we got to remember how important and powerful prayer is. Here's another quote. This one's from R.A. Torrey. Those guys that like back 200 years ago, their names are always like two initials, right? So, I mean, I guess I'm like R.A. Poor, our pastor's C.S. Phillips. If we really want to be holy, but for whatever, it just seems like it's a thing. I don't know. But this is the quote. This is the quote. I'm getting off track. When the devil sees a man or woman who really believes in prayer who knows how to pray, and who really does pray. And above all, when he sees a whole church on its face before God in prayer, he trembles as much as he ever did, for he knows that his day in that church or community is at an end. There are defining moments in everybody's life. We've all got them. If you look back over your life, you're going to think about Moments that changed the way you thought or the direction you were going, you know, a, a paradigm shift, right? And um, in 2002, I was reading these two biographies, and I actually dug them out, found them in my library, and brought them in. But I was reading these two biographies on these guys that were giants in prayer. And I just remember being so impressed by the lives of these two guys. I mean, the, the, the prayers that they prayed and, the, and the, the, the lifestyle of prayer that they led, there is a direct correlation to the prayers that they were praying and hundreds and hundreds of lives that were saved and brought into the kingdom of God. Whole cities that were transformed. There were cities where the brothels and the bars shut down and people, I mean, all the way to where people stopped cussing. I mean, you've heard Pastor Sean mention some of these stories too. But these two guys in particular, there are direct correlations to the prayers they were praying and the impact that just spread out, uh, you know, from the center of where they were praying. And I remember reading these stories, and I just kept getting so impressed by these two guys. And I kept thinking, man... These guys are so exceptional. These two guys, they're so unusual. They're so, it's like we're all here in our prayer life, and these two guys are like way up here. And as I was thinking that thought, I remember the Holy Spirit speaking to me and saying this. What if to me those guys are just normal? What if that's just normal? And what if everything else is below normal. And it really made me re-examine what I was thinking about. Pastor Sean just spoke on a new normal. And, you know, there's probably nobody in this room that has the exact same calling on their life as this guy or this guy. So you, you can't just pick up this book and read the book and try to mimic his life because you don't have the same calling that this person does. But what you can do is you can go after the call of God on your life with the same zeal and the same fire that these guys did. 
So I want to read just a little bit. Actually, I want to just talk real quickly before we dive into this about these two guys. So this guy right here, his name was Reese Howells, and he was a coal miner in Wales. And he got saved and got on fire for God during the Welsh revival. And um, I want to read something. This is just a little excerpt of a paragraph of an article talking about uh, as he got into this prayer ministry. And it says, while seeking the Lord for revival blessing in other areas, the Lord brought revelation to Reese. And Reese said, I was pleading his word, Malachi 3.10. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Then I saw the Holy Ghost descending on all the mission stations, he wrote. The vision came to pass and thousands received Christ. Would you like to see thousands receive Jesus right here? Would you like to see that? If that's not something that really burns inside you, then take that as a uh, check engine light to stop for a second and evaluate why you don't want that. Because yeah, that can happen. Now, God sent Reese Howells to South Africa and to India to reach those worlds, reach those areas, and bring them into the kingdom of God. But what if God has sent you to the Ford plant or to your job or to your neighborhood or to the sphere of people that you influence? Because, see, I, I want to separate us from the idea that there are missionaries and full-time ministers over here, and then there's just people that do life over here. Like there's some big separation and some big difference. When in reality, if we just read what the Bible says, if we just read what Jesus said, we are all in full-time ministry. I mean, once you gave your life to Jesus, you got a commission. You got a mission. And so what if your job, what if your mission is to look around at that sphere of influence that you have in your world and pray those people into the kingdom of God? And, of course, there's going to be action and feet that you put to that faith, too. But what if... I mean, one of, the, I, one of these two guys, I can't remember which one it was, the way he started in this lifestyle of prayer was he literally chose one person, one person, and he made that one person his mission. And every day he prayed for that one person without fail until that person came to Jesus. And then he moved on to the next person, and it just blossomed out from that. And then it came, you know, it came down to whole cities being changed. But he relentlessly pursued somebody for Jesus in prayer. So that's Reese Howells. The other guy, his name is um, John Hyde. And uh, he's known more often as Praying Hyde. And um, he's got a pretty cool story. And rather than tell it to you myself, I have a little quick little brief biography that I actually want to show you. So let's go ahead and put that video up. They called him the apostle of prayer or the man that never sleeps. His life was a life of prayer that to many that made him a fanatic. Others, he was an inspiration. But one thing is certain, praying John Hyde marked history. He's the man who prayed that famous prayer, Oh God, give me souls, lest I die. It was his constant prayer and the burden under which he lived. My friend, this story is not for the faint of heart, but I pray that it moves yours. You see, praying John Hyde was the son of a devout Presbyterian minister who often prayed that God would send forth laborers into the foreign fields. John's older brother, Edmund, he took that prayer to heart and he enrolled in the seminary to prepare for a life of ministry. Tragically, Edmund fell ill and he died before he could leave. Edmund's tragic loss had a powerful effect on John Hyde. He wondered if he ought to take Edmund's place and fulfill his father's prayer. In 1892, Hyde set sail for India. 
It was on that trip that he asked the Holy Spirit to baptize him in power for the work ahead. Hyde said of that encounter that it seemed as if the whole atmosphere around him changed as he surrendered fully to the Holy Spirit. In the years that followed, Hyde began to develop a prayer life that emulated the one we read about in the gospel with Jesus. Hyde would spend countless hours in study and in prayer, often missing meals, barely sleeping. He loved spending time with his Savior. He would lie face down upon the floor for hours calling out to God. Hyde's peers in ministry, they rebuked him for his zeal, but heaven apparently saw things differently. Revival was coming to India and this man was praying it in. A call went out to all of India to come to Silicot for a convention. 30 days in advance, Hyde, along with two other men, they prayed nonstop, day and night in preparation. Hyde felt the best thing that he could do is pray. Even at the onset of the convention, he knew that prayer during the convention was a must, and so two prayer tents were established, one for the men, one for the women. Hyde rarely met, left it. It was this devotion that won the hearts of the Indian people. One minister said, when I see this man from another country so burdened for my people, I feel ashamed when I think of how little I am doing for my own flesh and blood. Hyde would pray, God, give me one soul today. Imagine if we could live under such a burden from the Lord. When Hyde was scheduled to preach, he took the pulpit and quietly said, I thank God that he's given me no message for you today. Surprise was written on the face of everyone. He then said, the Holy Ghost is the leader of the meeting. Each morning, the meeting was left in this way. Liberty was not abused. People spoke only as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Conviction of sin came over the audience. It was a time of intense mental agony. The nearness of God was very real. This led many to desire for purity of their heart and their life. People would begin to be overcome by the Spirit of the Lord. They would begin making a public confession of their sins through much weeping and tears and shaking. This would then be replaced by outbursts of laughter and displays of joy as they were gloriously saved. When Hyde wasn't speaking, he was praying. Some would be drawn into the tent where he was. You'd often find him with his hand on a man's shoulder, looking intently into their eyes, asking about their salvation. Soon both would be on their knees, the man confessing his sins and seeking salvation. God answered Hyde's prayer for one soul a day, so Hyde prayed, give me two. And when two was being saved, he'd say, give me four, and then eight. Before long, thousands were being saved. Think about it, in the early 1900s, as Wells in America was being swept up into revival, another revival that few have ever heard about was taking place in what you and I now know today as Pakistan. It was written that the victory of Silicon was not won in the pulpit, but in the closet. Often the glory rested upon these meetings in a mighty way. While hidden out of sight, John Hyde and a faithful few, they travailed in prayer. In 1912, Hyde returned home here to Carthage, Illinois. He had fallen ill. It was discovered that he had a malignant brain tumor. He would die at the young age of 46, yet his life and ministry was responsible for the salvation of millions. When the autopsy of Hyde was conducted, physicians found to their surprise that the heart of John Hyde had physically moved in his chest. It was supposed that his favorite position of prayer, lying flat on the floor for hours, had caused this. No doubt, this man with the shifted heart had shifted the heart of God. You may wonder why visit the grave of this missionary? Why share his story on the trail of fire? Obviously, John Hyde was a general and a great missionary, but what's his importance to America? Well, consider this. This praying man's prophetic words written in 1900, he wrote about the dawn of a new century. He said this new century would be a time of Pentecostal power and a double portion of the Holy Spirit would be poured out. He saw an apostolic Christianity restored to the church and a great revival that would occur when we understood the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was one year before Topeka, four years before the revival in Wales, six before Azusa. Praying John Hyde prayed, prophesied, about a Pentecostal revival. Leonard Ravenhill often wrote that I find a great deal of talk now about revival. It seems everybody has a great interest in it, yet I found very few people who are burdened for it. My friend, revival does not come because we are interested in it. It comes because somebody is burdened for it. I pray that you're capturing a burden. I pray this story ignites something on the inside of you. John Hyde prayed, God send forth the laborers into the harvest. I pray in that for you now. So what if that is God's normal, right? What if that's normal? Again, that's John Hyde's calling that he's walking out. But that's just something I want to think about. Now, um, what we're going to do here with the rest of our time is um, we're going to talk about prayer. And what I want to do is not make the assumption 
that everybody here or in the 9.30 meeting tomorrow or 11.15, that we all know exactly how to pray. Because maybe you're looking at this whole topic of prayer and you're hearing these stories about these guys in their prayer closets and they prayed and all this stuff happened and you're like, man, I don't even know what I'm supposed to say. And so what I want to do is I want to take a look at what the Word of God says about prayer and break it down. And I want you to be able to leave here tonight um, with tools in your hands to be able to go home tonight and be able to begin praying effectively because the Bible tells us exactly what we need to do. So what I want to first talk about, just two things tonight. How do we pray and when do we pray? So there are forms of prayer. Now, if I just had 30 seconds to talk to you, um, I would probably just tell you real quickly, prayer is just conversation with God. Prayer is talking to God. Prayer is listening to God. Uh, you don't have to make it some formal thing. You're not reciting something. You're talking to God. You're in a community, a back-and-forth relationship with God. But since I have a little more than 30 seconds, I want to go in a little bit deeper. So there are four forms of prayer. The first form or type of prayer is called adoration. Now, adoration is focusing on who God is. It's a focus on God. It's not about me. It's not me telling God what I need. It's not about me telling God what I want. It's not even about me telling God, thank you for what you did for me. Adoration is all about God. It's all about the glory of God. It's all about the holiness of God. It's all about God. Psalms 95.6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. It's all about God. So the only I statements that you make in adoration is I worship you, I give you glory. So uh, you get that adoration is a form of worship in prayer that's all focused on God. We don't come into the picture in this type of prayer. The second type of prayer is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is meditating on what God has done. Adoration is thinking and focusing on what, who God is. Thanksgiving is about what God has done. Now, you actually come into the picture in Thanksgiving. So, you know, it's, you're acknowledging God's goodness in your life. You're acknowledging God's faithfulness in your life. We sing that song, Goodness of God, right? All my life you have been faithful. That's Thanksgiving in song form, but Thanksgiving also is in the form of prayer. So we pray in adoration, we pray in thanksgiving. Now, thanksgiving and adoration really are worship. And thanksgiving and adoration, or thanksgiving and praise, if you prefer, is how, according to Psalms 100, is how we enter the presence of God. So if you're, if you're saying, well, I don't, I just, I have trouble with that. I, I can't enter the, I just don't, it doesn't seem like I can enter the presence of God. Everybody's talking about having these encounters with God, and I just am not feeling it, and I, it just doesn't seem to happen for me. The Bible gives you a clear, it gives you two keys to be able to go into God's presence. Psalms uh, 100 verse 4 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. So what does that look like? It's really simple. If you want to enter his gates, you start off with this key. God, thank you for what you've done. Lord, I see your goodness. I see your faithfulness in my life. You are Every morning I wake up and you are there. Your mercy is new and you're just telling God how good he is and how faithful he is. That brings you into his gates. And if you want to go in further into his courts, then you put your focus completely on him how awesome he is, how holy he is. And as you begin to focus all of your attention and all of your praise on who God is, 
that draws you into his presence. It works. Has anybody in here ever seen that work? So that, those are keys to getting you into the presence of God. Now let me say this. Those first two forms of prayer, and I told you there were four, those first two forms of prayer should occupy the majority of your time in prayer. And there's a reason for that. If you've got 10 minutes to pray, I would spend seven minutes in adoration and thanksgiving. Here's why. Because the, the, the rest of your time in prayer is going to be about needs, about desires, about petitions, about problems, things like that. And here's, here's a fact that is unshakable. If you take the bulk of your time and you put your focus on God's power, his love, and his faithfulness, it will change the way you think about those things you're getting ready to ask God about. It will affect the way you may not even pray the same way after you've spent time worshiping God and, and acknowledging his goodness and his faithfulness. So spend the bulk of your time. Let's say you've got 30 minutes in the morning to pray. Spend 20 minutes just worshiping God and praising God and telling him how good he is and faithful he is. And let that affect your perspective. I've told you lots of times I think that everything comes down to identity and perspective. And when you put your focus on God, when you worship and when you give God thanksgiving for what he's done, it changes your perspective. Uh, form number three is confession. So we got adoration, we got thanksgiving, and we got confession. Now confession has a double meaning. It, it, it's one word, but it means two things, and they both apply. The first uh, application of confession is the confessing of uh, sin, or I blew it, I dropped the ball. And this is, this is a time where you're going to get right with God. So you're coming up and you're saying, God, I just really struggle with this, and I know it's wrong, and I want to be free from it. Lord, right now, I'm telling you, I confess this to you, and I repent. Help me, Lord God, to be free of this. And it's a time of confession. First uh, John 1, 9 says this, But if we confess our sins to God, he will keep his promise and do what is right. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all wrongdoing. When you confess, when you repent, then God does his part and he purifies you from wrongdoing. How many of you guys know that when you got saved, your spirit was regenerated and made perfect? You are the righteousness of God in Christ, but you still have a soul, a mind and a will and emotions that are going through a process of being transformed. And this confession affects that area. Um, and then, okay, so the last one is intercession or petition. In other words, these are big words that basically just means praying for someone or on behalf of someone. So intercession or petition. Now, this form of prayer, probably more than any other form, uh, will draw you into partnership with the Holy Spirit. This is going to be, there's going to be more of a community with the Spirit of God in this form of prayer, maybe than those others are. I say maybe, but probably. Because the Spirit will guide you on how to pray for others. Because you may think you know how to pray for somebody, but you might not. You might just think you do. I mean, that happens to me a lot. God, help that person to not be so stupid. But as I begin to just pray and seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I get the heart of God for that person. And again, my perspective changes and I realize I'm in the wrong. I'm thinking wrong. I'm not thinking right. And then the Holy Spirit will lead me how to pray. Now, I'll say this. I spend, when I'm in intercessory prayer, if you want to use that fancy word, I spend the majority of my time praying in the Spirit. I do. Because 
I recognize that there are a lot of times I really don't know what to pray. I just know that prayer is needed. And I will begin to pray in the Spirit. What do I mean? I mean speaking in tongues. And I will pray in the Spirit, and I will allow the Holy Spirit to begin to give me a path to pray as I come back and pray in the natural or pray in English, I will have a game plan and I'll have a focus for my prayer after I've prayed in the Spirit. Um, Just in case you're questioning whether or not that's biblical or not, look at what it says, Romans 8.26. It says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And then Ephesians 6.18 says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So there it is. Pray for your brothers and sisters. Pray in the Spirit. So what you see here in these four forms of prayer is a pattern for how to pray. You see adoration or praise. You see thanksgiving. You see confession. And you see intercession. And by the way, I, I, I neglected to, to fill in with confession. The other part of confession is not only just confessing what you've done, but making a declaration of what God has said. That's part of confession, too. And actually, what we did at the beginning of the message tonight, when we read from Isaiah, that was confessing what God has said, that his word tonight would go forth and not come back void. That's a confession. So those are patterns from the Bible on how to pray. And just in case it's still mysterious or murky in any way, Jesus laid it out very, very clearly. And I'm not going to go into every single verse-by-verse dissection of this, but you know you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is so cool because it came about because the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, how should we pray? And Jesus said, you should pray like this. And it's so simple. It's so easy. It's so straightforward. And I love it when it's easy and straightforward and we know exactly what it's saying. And Jesus was not saying, pray this prayer like we recite the Pledge of Allegiance, right? You know, okay, everybody, let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let the kingdom come. Your will be. It's, that's not what he was saying. He said, pray like this. So what he was giving us was a template or a pattern, or a blueprint. He was basically giving us a guide on how to pray. So you can go through the Lord's Prayer, and you can see it's in Matthew 6, um, 9 through 13. You can look it up, and you can see exactly what Jesus was talking about. He starts off with praise. He moves into making a confession. Let your kingdom come. Let it happen on earth as it is in heaven. He makes a petition, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, help us to walk in forgiveness, don't lead us into temptation, deliver us from evil. And then he ends again with praise, because how many of you know, you should leave your time of prayer with joy. You should leave prayer with joy every time. There should be an exchange that happens when you pray. Jesus said, cast your cares on me. Take my yoke on you. My yoke's easy. My burden's light. If you leave prayer without being changed, then probably all you did was just complain. And we need to be changed by prayer. So you should leave prayer uplifted, lighter. And so Jesus says the end of the prayer that he's telling the disciples how to pray, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power Yours is the glory forever and ever. So he ends with praise to God. So we, see, we can see this pattern. We can use this pattern. You can use it anytime. You can, anything you're praying about, you can use this pattern and let it guide the way that you pray. I do it all the time. Okay. So what happens if our prayer is not answered? Or what happens if our prayer is not answered the way that we wanted? 
We've all had that happen. Sometimes it's in a small issue that's just kind of an irritation. Sometimes it's a really big, really serious issue. And we prayed, and we prayed, and we did not see the outcome we were praying for. I mean, it's happened to me. I know it's happened to you. We all face trials of faith. And when this happens, inevitably there are questions. Um, but to suppose that the only way that you can prove your faith is by having a lifestyle free from problems and trials and trouble is to miss the whole object of faith. Because the object of faith is not in productivity, but in the source of faith, which is God himself. So I just want to, we could, we could take a rabbit trail right here just on this one thing and do a whole sermon series on just this. And I don't want to, I want to stay on course. But what I want to do, it, because I know that everybody, probably everybody in here has had one or two or maybe a lot of instances where you have prayed for something and you did not see it turn out the way that you wanted to see it turn out. I want to read a little excerpt from an article by Jack Hayford. And I think that he addresses this in a really uh, great way. Just listen to this article. It's, he says, don't be disappointed or even surprised when life deals a blow that forces you to retreat to the Savior. Even when our understanding ends and our finest systems and disciplines fail, the Savior is still there. Seek Jesus. He satisfies after all and above all. Anyone who has pushed past the pain to penetrate God's presence and comfort knows that what they found in Him was not self-induced emotion or rationalization, but a person. In His presence, gnawing doubts and nagging questions are resolved, most often. Not because He addresses them, but because He overshadows them. The grandeur of His person reduces the pain of temporal trial because his presence gives it an eternal perspective. Let's just stop real quick and pray. I just feel led to do that. Father, right now I pray for anybody in this room who that has been a stumbling point. That has been a hindrance to their faith. That has been something that has held them back from entering into a real life of prayer because there's been a moment where they prayed and they didn't receive an answer. Father, I pray, God, that you would bring them that eternal perspective, God, and that you may not give every answer to every question of why, but, Lord, I pray that you would raise and elevate their viewpoint to your viewpoint, and I pray that they would see your after-all and above-all nature that encompasses everything and brings comfort and an eternal perspective right now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we talked about uh, how we pray. And I just want to talk, this is the last point um, about when we pray. When should we pray? And I know the, um, maybe the Sunday school answer to that is all the time. And that actually is one of the subpoints. But there are some specific times that we pray. We pray in God's presence alone. That's one of the times when we pray. There is overwhelming power in the quiet place with God. Let me say that again. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other. There is overwhelming power in the quiet place with God. Psalms 91, 1 and 2 says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him will I trust. Most people that have a, uh, a lifestyle of prayer will have a place that they go. They'll have a certain place that they prefer. It's not to saying that they can't pray anywhere, but there's a place they prefer. Um, I like to go down in our music 
kind of library room and shut the door. Uh, Pastor Sean goes out in early in the morning on his front porch. You have a place probably that you go where you like to get alone with God. What people used to, the term people used to use for that was the prayer closet. And that's probably because a lot of people just went in their closet and shut the door. And so we'll use that term just for the sake of what we're talking about here, the prayer closet. But there's two places that you will go when you go into that powerful, powerful time alone with God. The first is the prayer closet, that place that you have designated to get alone with God. But the prayer closet is actually a doorway to a deeper place called the secret place. And that's what we were just reading about in Psalms 91. That secret place is not a physical location. It's a, how do I put it? It's a proximity in here to God. Does that make sense? It's a closeness to God in your heart that you intentionally draw close. Um, And there is unthinkable power in the secret place. There's indescribable joy in the secret place. When you're in that place, nothing can touch you. And if you have difficulty trusting God, you need to spend time in the secret place. Look again, Psalms 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him will I trust. So who will say, in him will I trust? He who dwells. There's a correlation there. Look at it one more time. I want to pull one other word out of that. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide. Shall abide. What does that mean, abide? Well, me and my son were at the park today, abiding. What does it mean? Shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I just want to dive deep into this real quick, not take too much time on it. I'm not like a Hebrew scholar or anything, but as I was uh, preparing this message, I really got curious about these words. And so I went and pulled out a Hebrew dictionary and I looked up the literal meaning of these words. And so The Hebrew word for dwell is the word yashab, and it means to tarry, to settle, to marry. And then the Hebrew word for abide is the word lun, L-E-W-N, and it means to stop or to stay permanently, okay? So what does Psalm 91.1 look like if you just put that literal meaning in there? It says, those who choose to tarry and settle in the secret place will stop and stay permanently hidden in Almighty God's strength. Now, that's the Aaron Poor translation, but I think it's accurate. How many of you would like that to be your reality, your truth? I'm just going to stay in the, in the hidden protection of Almighty God all day long. That's what that's talking about. So when do we pray? We pray in God's presence alone. We also pray in the world around us. So this is the praying all the time. This is a constant prayer. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How is it possible to pray without ceasing? How can you do that? I mean, I, we understand how to, we talked about how to pray. We talked about, you know, adoration, thanksgiving, confession, intercession. But how do we do that all the time? Is it possible to do that all the time? It is because prayer can become a lifestyle. 
It can become a lifestyle. It can become something so common, not in a, not in a, not in a way that, we lo- that it loses its value, but something that's so um, uh, standard for us throughout our day that we never really truly disengage from prayer. It can become that. When you leave the prayer closet, you don't have to leave the secret place. So it's totally possible, and it's easier than you think, to live your whole day with God. Um, Even better, you begin to discover that this wonderful relationship with the Holy Spirit that's always been available, that he's always wanted to have with you, you can have a closer relationship with him than any living person in the world. John 15, 15 says, I never called you servants because a master doesn't confide in his servants and servants uh, don't always understand what the master is doing. But I call you my most intimate friends for I reveal to you everything that I've heard from my father. So we can actually enter the secret place of God anytime and we can abide and remain with God throughout the day. Would you like to be able to just ask God about anything all day long? I mean, when you get into an uncomfortable conversation, when you get into a a perplexing situation where you're not quite sure what to do, wouldn't it be nice to be able to just say, God, what should I do? And then he tells you, that's what's supposed to happen. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So, um, We pray in God's presence alone. We pray in the world around us. And then we pray in the company of fellow believers. We have been increasing our frequency of praying together. We now have um, a prayer meeting, a prayer gathering that happens every Wednesday morning here at 7 o'clock. And people have been coming to that. I'd, I'd love to see a lot more of you come to that if you're, avail- if you're available and you're able to do that. We had TNT just the other night. We always have something on the last Thursday night of every month. It might be a TNT or it might just be another kind of a prayer meeting. But regardless of what you label you put on it, if you come here on the last Thursday night of the month, there'll be prayer. And then on top of that, even beyond our church calendar, People have just been getting together and praying just because. Think of that. Imagine that. Especially the teenagers. And since they've come back from this bold conference, there have been many, many impromptu prayer gatherings. And let me tell you, I've I've been hearing about stories this week of teenagers that have been going off and laying hands on people. People have been getting healed. God's doing something awesome. And don't think that there's not a correlation between this hunger for prayer and what God's doing among them. And so we pray in the company of fellow believers. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, when they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house. There is a story, it's a true story, about a group of people called the Moravians that got a hunger for prayer, and they began to pray together, and they began to get so intentional about it that they stationed people at every hour of the day, and they began a prayer meeting that lasted for over a hundred years. And I have one more video, and I want to show you about the Moravians. Let's go ahead and show that. It began in 1727. A band of refugees united together to pray. Led by a German nobleman who preached a heart religion in contrast to the cold and intellectual emphasis of his day. 24 men and 24 women determined that the flame of prayer should burn at the heart of their community. 
They divided themselves to pray in succession around the clock. It lasted for 100 years. The Moravian prayer meeting propelled over 3,000 missionaries to the ends of the earth, some even selling themselves into slavery. They went with one anthem. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. What do you think the effect of 3,000 missionaries being sent out is on eternity? There's no way to calculate it. There's no way to put a number on it. There's no way to quantify it. But this is what came out of this passion and drive to pray. And you realize it's not praying just for the sake of praying, right? It's not praying just so we can say, well, we prayed. It's because there's a hunger and a drive and a pull in our heart for more of God, for our desires to be lined up with his desires, for us to have a burden for the loss that he has. And so it pulls us into a place of prayer, and it changes our lifestyle, and it makes us take the acts to the things that are in our schedule that get in the way and we do whatever we have to do to bring prayer into our life Matthew 18 19 says again I say to you if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name there I am among them. God, make us a people of prayer. Lord, let it become our culture. Let it become our lifestyle. Lord, let lesser things just be cut loose and allowed to just drift off. Father, I pray that you would stir up right now in people's hearts a hunger for your presence and a burden for the loss that you have and a desire to just set, push everything aside and get into your presence and seek you and pursue you In Jesus' name. Let's go ahead and stand up. One last thing I want to leave with you. Think about the word push. Push. It's, it's dealing with the idea of being persistent in prayer. And it stands for pray until something happens. Pray until something happens. So let's just, let's do this song. Let's turn our hearts towards God. But then let's also have our hearts open and allow the Holy Spirit to do something in us as we sing and as we come to God, vulnerable and open to him. Amen.